A number of artists did recall some skepticism early on about whether the model could work. It was new. It was a little unfamiliar. A lot of them said that the collective energy ultimately won out. It was exciting. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. So everyone knows the dirty secret of the dog-eat-dog art market, which is that while the artist creates an artwork, the vast majority of the value of that artwork is created and captured by others, from the 50% that goes to the dealer at the point of sale to the multiples made afterwards by the collectors who buy the art and then flip it when the artist gets hot. But what if there was a way for artists to protect themselves from this kind of exploitation by banding together and pooling their art into a fund to provide a safety net against the vicissitudes of the market where all artists, hot and not hot alike, benefit from the rising values of rising stars. Well, something like that does exist, and it's called the Artist Pension Fund, which since 2004 has enlisted hundreds of artists behind this common cause. The only catch? It is apparently too good to be true, at least if you go by the maelstrom of legal threats, recriminations, and accusations that have sprung up around the trust in recent years. So what went wrong with the utopian project that is the Artist Pension Trust, and who is behind it anyway? To find out, Artnet News Executive Editor Julia Halperin spoke to reporter Catherine Wagley about her recent investigation into the one art fund everybody wanted to root for. Enjoy the conversation, and for the full story, check out Catherine's riveting two-part series on Artnet News. Catherine Wagley, thank you for joining us on The Art Angle. Thank you for having me. So the Artist Pension Trust wanted to solve a fundamental problem with being a professional artist, and that is that you aren't getting a paycheck every two weeks, you don't have a retirement plan, and you can often have these long stretches where you aren't making any sales and therefore you aren't making any money. How did APT try to address this? So the initial plan for the Artist Pension Trust was that they would invite artists in, emerging artists primarily, with the hope that their work would appreciate. And even if um, not all the artist's work would appreciate, enough of the artist's work would appreciate that it would benefit the whole trust. So the plan was that for 20 years, artists who were invited into the trust would designate one work for APT each year. And then if and when the fund sold an artist's work, 40% would go to the artist, 32% would be split among the whole collective, and 28% would go to cover the Artist Pension Trust's administrative fees. I think part of the reason it was attractive was that even if the art market for one artist waned, like an artist could be doing well for a while and then they weren't doing well, as happens to so many artists over the course of their career, they'd still have some money coming in and a big enough pool of artists, although it couldn't be too big, it had to be like a carefully calculated size pool, would diversify the risk and hopefully would work out for everybody. So it's sort of like a collective nest egg and you're spreading the risk around Yes. so that if a couple artists are really successful and others are middling and some don't find success, everyone can benefit. That was the idea that was peddled to artists, at least, and that excited them when they first heard about it. Yeah, and we'll get into the sort of reality versus the marketing pitch a little bit later. But first, tell me a little bit about APT's origin story. You know, when was it founded and how was it founded? So um, APT was founded around 2004. And the founder, who is a serial entrepreneur named Modi Schneiberg, who's originally from Israel, 
has said that this idea came from talking with an artist friend in the back of a New York City taxi. So they're in the back of this taxi and she's telling him about her life and he realizes that she has no pension plan. And by and large, artists don't have pension plans. And he thought, well, this is kind of silly because you're making your art itself is an appreciating asset, Mm. ideally. So why couldn't you invest that, your artwork, in your own future as an asset that could appreciate over time and ultimately help you if handled correctly later on in your life? Yeah, it seems like a reasonable idea and a good idea and very clever. Yeah. And, And then, of course, it was the complexities of how to make it work. This idea took seed like in a moment before the Great Recession in this moment where Schneiberg had just sold uh, Image ID, his first company. And so he was looking for a new venture and there was a an optimism in the art market. There had just been this study that was published, what's called the May Moses Index, which was an index for measuring art sales that proposed that art could be actually be more profitable than a fixed income security, potentially. And so even though, you know, it wasn't a new idea that art could be an investment, this new data made it seem a little more secure. It was also, I feel like, the first time that people were starting to think about art as this fungible thing. You know, the internet was starting to spring up. Everyone has more access to information about the art market. And there's a lot of optimism that maybe artists can take control of their own destiny. Yeah, totally. I think that's true. So Schneiberg then partnered with one of his former professors from Hebrew University, Dan Galai, who was in Israel. He's a risk management expert who had previously studied under Milton Friedman and had created an index to track stock volatility in the 1980s. So Galai becomes kind of the numbers man. And then Schneiberg and Galai invite David Ross, who's a former museum director, to be kind of the art person, the person who can liaise between the founders and the artists, ultimately. So going back a little bit to Modi Schneeberg, because I feel like there's so much to say about him and he is quite a character with a long and colorful business history. So can you give me a little bit of insight into his resume and any particular highlights that sort of set him up for this seemingly groundbreaking art venture? Yeah, totally. I still feel like I don't understand enough about all the ins and outs of the different fields he's been involved in to totally understand his career. But he's a serial entrepreneur, which means he founds a lot of companies. And um, his first that really did well was Image ID, which developed a program for recognizing patterns within images. And since then, he started a lot of projects that involve facial recognition, relationship mapping, image identification, phenotype tracking, data collection. Like They're all in the realm of tech, more or less. There's one, Visi Labs, which later became this facial recognition site called Face.com, which Facebook bought. He founded a lot of companies in succession. Like in 2016, he founded three companies, I believe. CyberMDX, which is cybersecurity for medical devices, and Seedex, which is about genetic traits and seeds, and then another trucking systems company. So he's kind of all over the place, and he didn't have a background in art before APT. And as a sort of quirky aside, we also know that Schneiberg really, really likes to patent things. So, you know, he patented, I think, the concept for APT, but he's also patented a couple of other somewhat controversial things. And I wonder if you could catch us up on that real quick. Yeah. So he patented APT's model really early. He filed one of the first patents for APT's model in January 2004. So that was right when APT was beginning to take shape before artists had officially joined So it was clear that he was thinking about it as a model that could be repeated and potentially sold somewhere down the line, something he wanted to protect. And I found a lot of international patents when I was searching just to try to better understand his businesses and his 
MO. But, you know, one of the patents that became controversial and got a lot of press was that on September 11, 2001, this was a trademark, actually, not a patent application. He tried to trademark September 11th. And when people found out about it later on, it got some controversial press because it seemed very opportunistic. And ultimately, the trademark was denied because the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office worried that people wouldn't understand. They would think that he was talking about the terrorist attack. Did he say he was talking about something else? Well, in the patent, I believe he said it was for entertainment purposes, like September 11th, the opera. Or or it was just uh, he was patenting the names that it could be used in various ways. When I emailed with him, he felt like the press about the trademark had been used to malign him and that it was unfair and that actually all he'd wanted to do was just protect September 11th so that nobody would profit other than the victims. Although it's not clear from the trademark application that I read that that was his intention. Well, it's clear he's a man who sees an opportunity and moves on it very quickly from that anecdote and many others. But as you spoke about a little bit earlier, this concept that artists could band together and support each other and secure their futures really did hit a chord with a lot of people. And so once it was up and running, APT grew really quickly. So how big was it at its peak? It was 2,000 artists, and that was planned, essentially. So as I've tried to better understand the model and the potentials of the model and the way it was designed, it didn't ultimately end up working that well, I feel. But if it had worked, the idea was that the risk had to be diversified, but it couldn't be diversified that widely. Like there had to be some limits Mm -hmm. and artists had to be invited based on their potential, but it was better to invite artists who weren't already totally established. So each chapter was capped at 250 artists and they started in New York and then Los Angeles and then moved to Mexico City and Berlin and Dubai. And so Ultimately, there were 2,000 artists spread across eight chapters of 250 artists each. It's kind of like a personal injury lawyer situation, right? Where it's like APT doesn't benefit unless the artists benefit, in theory. Yeah, so, so nobody gets any money unless the artist's work sells. Although that's a little complicated, too, because APT was actively seeking investors in the model. Mm. You talked to a lot of artists who have participated in APT's various chapters. And what did they tell you about their initial experiences and what drew them to APT? A number of artists did recall some skepticism early on about whether the model could work. It was new. It was a little unfamiliar. A lot of them said that the collective energy ultimately won out. It was exciting. David Ross had appointed a number of curators and advisors and people who could act as artist liaisons in the various locations. So Los Angeles had its own liaisons and New York had its own liaisons. And um, these people were the people who were reaching out to artists and bringing them in. And often they were people the artists already knew. I think that made it feel safe. And it also felt exciting to be doing something that could ultimately benefit them in the long run in a career that was very precarious, but also that could benefit one another, their community. So a few years in, APT starts to kind of crash and burn. So what were the first signs of trouble? I think this question has like a two-part answer because there's the point where artists started to question the model Mm -hmm. and then the part where it actually seemed like the model was beginning to show its flaws. So the first part, a lot of people, even me, like I, I don't remember really questioning 
APT until I heard about the artist Walid Rod's performative lecture in which he questioned APT's ties to the Israeli military and also excavated the capitalist model that it was based on or the venture capitalist model. And Walid Rod did that lecture around 2010. He'd been invited to join APT in Dubai and he'd started asking questions. And then he started realizing, okay, well, Schneiberg and the people who worked with him at his first company had ties to the Israeli military. What does that mean for an Arab artist? Is that safe? And then he started questioning the model and trying to understand what it was that Schneiberg was doing and asking questions about the way data was being collected. And then he used all of this as a foundation to his lecture. And there was also a writer and artist, Gregory Chalette, who I also spoke to for this piece, who around the same time was questioning the model and arguing that this model was in a way the opposite of a collective model, that it relied on picking up artists who had the potential to succeed, and it was a way of gatekeeping mm. and relying on a market that only lifted up a few. Around 2009, 2010, 2011, there starts to be more dissenting voices. And I think that's when more artists start to think, oh, maybe this isn't what I wanted it to be. It's so interesting because it does, when you first hear about it, seem like this utopian thing where, you know, the few can help the many. But then you think, okay, we're artificially capping it at 2,000. We know that there are so many more than 2,000 artists out there in the world working. And so there is this kind of built-in elite limit that kind of has to exist if you're trying to make something like this, I think, work in a field that is as harshly structured as the art market. But it does kind of, when you look really closely at it, the very beautiful concept starts to show cracks in how you might execute it. Yeah, exactly. The artist York Chang, who I spoke to for this piece, said, you know, the idea was great, but once you actually read, like really read the contract, it wasn't even in the contract. It already was becoming something else. In terms of when the model seemed to be showing its flaws, that was a little later, I think, in 2016 and 2017. So this was after APT had officially merged with MutualArt.com which was also founded by Schneiberg. And its relationship with ABT and Mutual Art is kind of confusing. I did my best to explain it in the story, but I think part of the reason it's confusing is because it is confusing. Mm. If you look at early patents for APT, Mutual Art is listed on the application. So it's like these companies always kind of existed in tandem, and yet it was never quite clear what one's role was and what the other one was. In 2007, Mutual Art was founded, and it's a market analytics website. And then in 2016, the two companies officially merged. So then Mutual Art was in charge of APT. And at this point, Mutual Art's leadership decided to bring APT artworks to auction. Some advisors who worked with Mutual Art and APT and understood the art market specifically thought this was a bad idea because the artists who were in the trust weren't necessarily artists who would do well at auction. And artists and their dealers also resisted this plan and protested when they heard that the Sotheby's auction was going to take place in London, just because they didn't think this was the best thing for the artist's work. How did that auction go and why did it end up being viewed as a mistake? So one auction in New York happened and I believe it went fine in that there were no hiccups, but the fear from gallerists and artists and some of the people who were even advising APT was that this was not the way to get the best prices or to get the best exposure for these artists who were in the APT collection, who weren't established artists who were already coming to auction often for the most part. And so after that first auction, there was growing frustration and some uproar among artists and their dealers and advisors. And so the second auction, which was scheduled to be at Sotheby's London, was canceled because of this protest. 
Just to pause on that element and plot twist for a minute. So my understanding is that was not part of the original plan as it had been presented to the artists. And so why did APT say that they were going to sort of change that 20-year plan and bring work to auction sooner and bring work to auction at all? I don't know the, the answer totally, but as I understand it from the reporting that I've done, that it was a way to bring in revenue And I believe they were starting to need that revenue. Mm. Storage costs and the logistical costs of running APT were higher than the founders had initially predicted or initially understood. And it's interesting when you go back and read some of the press from early on in 2004 when it was founded. There was one article where a dealer was quoted anonymously because they didn't want to be perceived as a naysayer saying like, it's so expensive even just to store the work of the artists on our roster. I don't see how this could work financially Mm. because the costs are going to be so high to store the work and then to lend it to institutions and do the things that will actually get this collection seen. And I think that that actually ended up being true. So around 2016, 2017, and even before that, they'd started trying to sell the work in the collection, even though part of the idea when APT was founded was that you wait, you wait a while, maybe a decade, maybe seven, eight years for the work to appreciate. But around 2013, 2014, they started thinking, okay, we need to start trying to sell this work. And even though it's not said overtly, I believe that's because they started to need revenue. So why they didn't auction, I think, has to do in part with the fact that APT had merged with Mutual Art. And Mutual Art was a website that primarily called auction data. So it was run by people who were thinking about auctions and not necessarily thinking about the artists in the pension trust, who were not artists who had a lot of auction data behind them. And so I think it was this merger and these people with different interests and also the fact that some of the people who were running and working at Mutual Art were not people with a lot of art world experience Mm. led to this call that ultimately became a bad call. And after that, around this time is when APT also announced that it was going to start charging artists storage fees, even though the agreement had been that the artists invest their work and APT handles the storage. So when they announced that they were going to charge this $6 a month storage fee, The APT artists, again, protested, and some of them enlisted a lawyer, actually. And ultimately, these storage fees were never charged. And is that sort of the second piece that you identify as the sign that the model was starting to break down, even though APT at that point didn't actually charge artists the fee? Yes, because after the protest over the storage fees, that's when communication between the artists and APT started to dwindle. At a certain point, artists just completely lost track of their art and they had no idea where it was. How did that happen? It happened, I believe, just because of this breakdown in communication. So the artists were no longer hearing from the people who had been their contacts and their point people, and they were no longer getting the annual status reports on their artworks that their contracts promised. So they just didn't know. They didn't know what was going on. And at a certain point, I think they started a Facebook group. There was just sort of like general outcry, but I guess they didn't have that much recourse because nobody was returning their calls or their emails. Yes. So during the pandemic, they started organizing. It'd been a long time since they'd heard from anybody from APT. And they were trying to connect with one another and figure out what was happening with the other artists in the chapters. And then began organizing with the hope of just figuring out where their work was, whether it was safe, and then ultimately, hopefully, getting it back. 
And the first breakthrough in that organizing effort was probably this New York Times story that came out in the summer. New York Times reporters did track down where the art was being stored in two warehouses, one in Leipzig, Germany, and one in Liverpool, New York. And before that report, artists weren't exactly sure where their work was. For instance, there were for years, the work from the LA chapter was stored in a warehouse in Torrance, which is just south of LA. And the LA artists weren't even aware that their art had been shipped across the country. Wow. And so once the New York Times story came out and artists figured out, in theory, generally where their art was, what happened after that? They started lawyering up. In a way, nothing happened right away. I talked to an artist who told me, yeah, I mean, so what's happened since the story? I mean, essentially nothing, but I am now working with a lawyer. So a group in New York started working with the lawyer, Lawrence Eisenstein. That's a group of 15 artists who are from the New York chapter. And he just cold called one of those artists because he collected her work, right? Yeah, he read the New York Times article and he got in touch with her. Mm -hmm. And what about the other artists who've got lawyers now? Yeah, and then in LA, a group of... 65, 66 artists are working with a law firm and the lawyer Paul Kasu. And I'm not sure if he reached out to them or they reached out to him, but they're working as a big group. So there's five artists who are the organizing committee or the legal advocacy committee, and they're liaising with the lawyer and liaising with the artists. But there are at least 61 other artists who have signed retainers at this point, and they're working together to serve APT and make their demands known, which is to have condition reports on their art and ultimately get their art back. And what's the status of those lawsuits? Because I imagine, you know, it was hard enough for them to figure out who to ask about where their art was. It's probably even more complicated to figure out who to sue. Yes, I think that's been a challenge. But all I'm able to say right now is that the lawsuits are in progress. And I understand that the groups and their lawyers are working together, at least to an extent. And the LA group, I understand, is about to serve its demand letter. And a couple of sources you spoke to suggested that, you know, APT was never really about the art, which I think is so fascinating. It was actually about data collected from the artists. Can you explain what they meant by that? I mean, I think that Modi Schneiberg has always worked in tech. And when he filed those initial patents, he was talking about intellectual property, an idea, a model. And I think that that's kind of always been this core schism with ABT, that it was an idea and a model and yet it was also an art collection. As an idea, it was about this potential and this potential for art to appreciate, potential for resources to be distributed in a certain way, and potential for risk diversification to work out in a certain way. But in practice, it was this growing art collection of actual physical objects. And many of them were, you know, quite large or quite delicate. And so it was expensive to maintain. So I think that even in corresponding with Schneiberg via email, he suggested that the model might work better in the future with digital assets rather than physical artworks, maybe even NFTs. There was a certain point where artists started to wonder whether their artwork was even what was interesting to the people running APT. Even though Schneiberg had been interested in intellectual property and data collection since very early on in the founding of APT, it was when Mutual Art was founded that more of the APT artists started thinking, oh, okay, well... This is a data analytics, a market analytics website. Is this more what he's interested in? The information that can be collected about artwork and the way it can be used. Well, and it's interesting too, because I feel like the art world's writ large only in the past maybe three or four years has come to recognize the value of data and how it might be used. You know, the fact that if you have information on a thousand artists and where they're showing and 
how they're moving around the world, that that could give you valuable insight into the shape and direction of the market. And so it is this other way in which Schneiberg was sort of ahead of the curve in recognizing that there is a lot of value in that information. I think that's what he's interested in is being ahead of the curve and finding these areas of potential. And he's also, as far as I can tell, a pretty hard guy to track down. And I know it took you a really long time to even get him to speak with us. So how did you do that? And what did he have to say about all of this? He did ultimately just respond to my email. Um, (laughs) A classic journalistic endeavor. (laughs) Um, So I think think it's been harder for artists to, to get in touch with him and harder for them to get the answers they want from him. And harder to physically figure out where he is in order to serve him. (laughs) But he still does respond to emails, his ABT Global email address, Um, though he didn't want to speak with me in person. He preferred to answer questions via email. But there's nobody, and he he confirmed this himself, nobody's running APT right now. It doesn't have active management or an active CEO. There's only one employee who has been responding to artist emails in recent months. So that's what has made it so hard. And it makes Modi feel elusive because there are these really fundamental things that artists want from him, and yet they can't get the answers that they're looking for and are not sure if they'll get their art back or what the condition of it is, which is what's, I think, really concerning for a lot of them. And what did he have to say for himself about sort of all of these charges from artists about the program and their work being mismanaged? He says that he still believes in the vision behind the venture. And he says that the current trusts are still functional. But he does acknowledge that there were some logistical issues and some things that he would do differently if he were to start new APT chapters in the future. And so do we know where the art is now? It's in these two warehouses in Germany and New York? That's what I believe. Based on the New York Times report, I didn't get any additional information in my reporting about the quality of the work. And who is paying those storage bills? I mean, that's a good question. I believe that somebody associated with ABT is paying them, but that's not clear because there's nobody officially running ABT. Perhaps Mutual Art is paying the storage fees. I just picture this kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, these like big downstairs halls full of crates with this kind of like art graveyard prison. I'm sure it's not actually like that, but that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, the New York Times reporters did access the warehouses. I'm not sure if they actually did any status checks on any of the artworks. I think that's what's worrying to some of the artists is that they haven't gotten status reports on their artwork in so many years. And what if it's damaged? What if it's lost? Yeah, you spoke to a former APT employee who said that the conditions in which the work was stored could have been better. Yeah, I spoke with Sarah Merkett, who worked with ABT and with Mutual Art first, but she said that she had visited the Los Angeles warehouse when the work was still being stored in Torrance and had found that the conditions weren't great. So I think that we could probably, based on all of this, generously describe APT as a dumpster fire. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, there are a few other groups that have formed initiatives in the same vein to provide collective support to artists. And you looked at a few of those, too. Can you tell me about them? Yes. I think one of the things that first attracted me to this story was exactly that. Like, I was watching artists organize together to get their work back, and it felt like it had some of the initial collective energy that had made ABT 
exciting, even though they were working to get their work back from APT to, to, to kind of... Yeah, they were doing the APT. opposite. Yeah, they were working yeah. to roll back APT. Yes. And so I was interested in, in that and also thinking, okay, well, this didn't work. Why didn't it work? And what could work? Could the things that artists wanted, which was a bit of a safety net and to make a collective effort toward their shared security in this precarious profession. Are there other ways to do that? And so I did speak to a couple of people who had been watching what was happening with APT themselves. I spoke to the curator and consultant Karina Papone and the artist Deborah Sacco, who just founded something they call the California Art League. And they'd been paying attention to the Artist Pension Trust because part of what they wanted to do was help artists have this longer term support and security but they're not envisioning anything like a fund, but instead they're thinking of what they're doing as like a commons where art workers across the field, curators, advisors, artists, preparators, administrators, et cetera, share their resources and knowledge. And one of the things they say they learned from APT was that it doesn't necessarily work to silo these networks mm. to treat artists as separate than other art workers or treat artwork as an independent asset, but rather... They're thinking of the asset, if that's even the right word, as the network and the network that belongs to the collective. So a group of art workers coming together and pooling their resources to help each other have greater access to capital, have greater support and resources financially and otherwise. So I think what they're doing is saying, OK, it can't be top down. It has to be the artists and the other art workers working together to build this network for themselves. Mm hmm. Then I also spoke with Young Chung, who runs the gallery Commonwealth and Council with Kibum Kim. And Commonwealth and Council is a gallery that started as an artist-run space. And so I feel like it's always been particularly attuned to artists' actual needs. And so they also were watching APT's implosion. And I believe some of the artists on their roster were APT artists. Over the pandemic, they were hosting monthly virtual check-ins with the 30 artists on their roster. And they started talking about what they could do to support their artists better. And they came up with the idea for a Commonwealth Fund and the Council Trust. And for the fund, they asked collectors to forego the standard discounts. And instead, the money that would have gone to a discount goes into this fund to meet artists' needs. And when I talked to them, they weren't yet sure how that money would be split among the artists, whether the, if there were artists who, for instance, didn't have health care, would it go to them first or would it be split evenly across all the artists? And they were hoping to figure that out through conversations with the artists on their roster. And then the trust works a little differently with the gallery artists opting in and designating a work that's valued between 15000 and 20000 so that everybody kind of enters at that same price point. And then over time, as the work appreciates or doesn't, the proceeds will benefit all the artists who are in the trust. So it's very similar in a way to APT. Yeah, I was going to say that feels like a sort of pared down focused version of APT. Yeah, it's it's more local and it's smaller and the gallery is already storing the artwork for the most part, which is something that I felt like came up a lot in my conversations. And the artist Yerk Chang pointed this out too. He described the dream of APT as kind of being a meta gallery. And that really what APT promised was what a good gallery would ideally do for its artists. It's just that so many artists don't have that kind of support from their galleries if they have a gallery at all. Mm. And so Commonwealth and Council is kind of trying to do this for its artists within the context of the gallery structure. So, you know, you have spent, I think it's definitely fair to say months, maybe longer, swimming in this utopian idea that artists can join together and support one another. After all of that, and after seeing the implosion of APT, do you think that such a thing can actually work or is it just a total pipe dream? I don't know if something like APT could work in the sense that it was envisioned as this venture capital 
experiment. I think that these collective efforts seem really exciting to me. I was so inspired by the organizing that artists were doing. And even in these efforts by artists who are lawyering up to lawyer up as groups, Mm. to pool their resources to take legal action. And I think that maybe there is a way in which some of what APT promised could be recreated. Maybe not this model that's based on art sales necessarily, but maybe a model where you kind of pool resources in some way and then redistribute them depending on who needs help. I do think there's potential. And I also, you know, I talked to the artist Ashley Hunt, and that was a really interesting conversation. And he was questioning what happens to the collection. APT is now this huge art collection, even Mm. though it feels like it may not even exist right now. Like it's not even clear what condition the art is in. But he was saying, okay, well, what if this collection is kept together? And what happens to it then? What if uh, an institution acquires it? What does it come to represent? Does it represent this late stage capitalist folly? I thought that was kind of an exciting idea too, to think of the artworks as continuing to live together as representing something about a moment in our cultural history. Yeah. Put it in the late capitalism museum. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. I always think that utopianism, (laughs) that there's some place for it, but I agree with the artists and galleries who I spoke to who said that it needs to be more local and more ground up in order for it to actually help artists. I do think it's so interesting that the sort of most hopeful part that you witnessed was the collective action of the artists trying to get their art back or trying to kind of regain control or power back from APT, that that was sort of where the magic and spark of collective action really ignited. (laughs) Totally. I love that they're working together. I've been covering the labor movement in museums as well a lot over the last few years. And I think it's really inspiring when groups of artists or art workers are like, we can change the system that isn't working for us. I hope they do. Well, thank you so much for joining us on The Art Angle, Catherine. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manley, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.